Well, if you were with us last weekend, you know that we tried to just put our words into action by getting out of here and going and just being the hands and feet of Jesus, trying to live out his mission that he called us to, just to be salt and light and uh, just to make tangible investments in the people's life uh, because we are saved, we're called, and we're sent people. And I've loved hearing some of the stories over the past week. One story I, I love is a, from a guy named Taylor who attends our West Campus. And last weekend, as he left the West Campus, like he does every week, he went down the same road and there's always the same homeless person just standing right there at the intersection. And for whatever reason, last weekend, he couldn't drive by one more time. And so he made a U-turn, he pulled into a gas station, he got a, some, a cold beverage, and he walked up to that homeless guy who he's seen a hundred times, and he just gave him a drink. He wanted him to know that he was noticed, that he was loved by somebody, and that somebody was somebody who loves God. I also love a story about a guy named Tom, who's actually living at the Evansville Rescue Mission right now as we speak. And yet he's been attending our church for two months. And last weekend when he was here, he felt like he just had to, to act upon the challenge. And so he joined a couple of other people down at the Potter's Wheel, another ministry here in our community, and began serving there. He found community and connection with a group of people he had never met before. And he also just continued to live out God's mission in his own life. Even as somebody who was receiving love, he was giving love. If you weren't here last weekend, I have some bad news for you. And the bad news is this, today's sermon is longer than 10 minutes, even though I know kickoff is just a little bit away, right? The good news is, is that you've not missed your opportunity. You still have the opportunity to intentionally and prayerfully move out and just be God's conduit of love in someone else's life. We're here to restore the shalom that God intended all of us to experience. And God's placed you in your family, in your neighborhood, right here in this community to be his hands and feet. For all of us, we want to move this from just being a, a one-time event to something that we're doing every day. Just the people that God places in our life, we don't see them as projects, but we know that God has placed us here on purpose. And we want to offer ourselves to just be his conduit of love in every aspect of this community. And so we want you to continue to live in this way and also continue to share those stories because they're so encouraging to see what God's up to in our midst. This weekend, we kick off a, a, an extended sermon series on one of Jesus' famous teachings, the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded by Matthew and by Luke, but we're going to study the book of Matthew together. So I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bible with you or you want to use the one in the seat back in front of you or have it on a device. We're going to look at Matthew because Matthew is kind of the extended play of the Sermon on the Mount. Five, six, and seven, all three of those chapters record Jesus' teachings. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the most quoted sections of all of Scripture, second only to the Ten Commandments. And it contains some of the most famous of Jesus' words like the, the Lord's Prayer or the uh, Golden Rule. Jesus' teachings about, about marriage, about adultery, about fasting, about prayer, about how to love our neighbors, those are all wrapped up into the Sermon on the Mount. Most people like the Sermon on the Mount because they have no earthly idea what it actually says. Jesus makes some really frank comments about marriage and divorce, 
about how to treat our anger, how to deal with our anxiety, also the true characteristics of what his followers live like. And most of those are universally rejected today. Yet what Jesus is trying to do is draw us a picture of what it truly means to have life to the fullest. While we're not sure if all of these teachings were actually part of just one sermon or Matthew kind of compiled them together in one location, we do know this, that every word is from Jesus alone. This is one of the five major discourses into the entire book of Matthew. And we want to look at it and see what Jesus has to say in this Sermon on the Mount so that we can understand his ministry and mission. We can also learn how to model our life after him. We're going to pick it up actually in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. So follow along as we read the words of Matthew. Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those suffering from seizures and the paralyzed and Jesus healed them. Large crowds from Galilee and Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Matthew writes that Jesus was surrounded by a multitude of people. And within that multitude were two groups of people. The first were the group that we would call the crowds. There were those who were curious and astounded by Jesus' teaching and ministry, yet they remained neutral and uncommitted. The second group of people were disciples, maybe better translated learners. They were those who were eager to hear from Jesus and even follow him. Today, you might find yourself in one of those two groups of people. Maybe you're here today as a fan of Jesus. You've heard a lot about him. You're kind of curious, but you're uncommitted. And still others of you there today are, are followers of Jesus. You know he has the words of life and you're leaning in, trying to learn and be like him. Jesus invites anyone to come, to listen to his words, to find understanding and depth and application. He's casting a vision of what it looks like to follow him and have this life to the fullest. And he knows that those who have ears to hear and eyes to see will lean in. This sermon is designed to be a call to all people. The hearing, understanding, and obeying moves one from being a follower or from a, a, the crowd to being a disciple. I pray as we study through the Sermon on the Mount, we journey through Matthew's words, we pray that God will speak to each of us as we continue to grow deeper as a follower of Jesus. And we also want to resource you to help understand Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Our team has put together a devotion guide that is focused on the words of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount. And the good news is, is that we've had such a response of people wanting this, we've ran out already this weekend. We'll produce more this week, but we wanted you to know that you could download this daily devotion guide that has a reading plan through the book of Matthew and also a way to just kind of process what Jesus is saying um, to all of us who want to be his followers. You can download it at our website, on our app, and as you leave today, you can pick up a card that has all the information where you can find the electronic version of this journal. We hope that you'll journey with us through the Sermon on the Mount. 
Both Matthew and Luke record that the, the setting of this sermon was certainly on a mountain. And there could be a very practical reason that Matthew says Jesus went up a mountain, he sat down, and he began to teach those around him. It kind of created this natural amphitheater so those who wanted to hear the words of Jesus could hear it. There was quite a crowd that was following him. Luke says that Jesus descended down a mountain. He sat down and began to teach the people. Luke has recorded that, that Jesus had been up on the mountain all night praying. He also decided who were the 12 apostles out of those followers of his that were going to help move this kingdom forward. I think Matthew has a significant reason for identifying the location as a mountain because mountains have played a significant uh, interest, a, a significant role in the history of all of Israel. Dale Allison says this, Jesus is looking for a weighty place to speak his weighty words. The revelatory character of his discourse demands a site consistent with its content. Mountains had played a significant role in the history of Israel. In fact, high places were known as places of worship and also revelation. The most famous mountain probably all of Israel's history was Mount Sinai, where Moses ascended up to meet with God and he brought back the terms of a covenant that God was making with his people. It's what we know as the Ten Commandments. In this moment, Jesus is establishing a new covenant between God and his people. And as we will see, it's rather a bunch of rules and regulations, do's and don'ts, based on external obedience to a law, this new covenant is based on kingdom living and life to the fullest that Jesus came to bring us. See, the Sermon on the Mount was never intended to be a list of commands to follow on our own strength, but rather character-forming traits, a way of life for those who choose to follow Jesus. And Jesus expounds on the reality of what it truly means to follow him, depending on his presence and his power in our everyday life. He's describing life as God intended it, to be. When I think about life, I think about this clay jar. I think some of, this, uh, some of us are represented in this jar. Down here at the bottom is just the clay portion. It's just kind of natural and, and authentic and real. And some of us here today try to live our lives this way. Some of us are represented more by this clay portion of the jar because we know we have some warts and some bumps and bruises and, and we just like to kind of cover all those over with a shiny finish and kind of hide them from everybody else. And some of the rest of us look like this. We look like our lives is just kind of shattered into pieces and sometimes we don't even know why or how. I want you to lean into the words of Jesus because in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes we look at today, Jesus is drawing us a picture of what true life looks like. He wants us to lean into. Jesus has just been healing people. He begins teaching them because he knows his words are life-giving. They're restorative. They're directive. They're fruit-producing. They're a description and a prescription of what it looks like to follow God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to live in covenant with him. And so Jesus kicks off the Sermon on the Mount with a section that many have called the Beatitudes, I'm grateful that they're not labeled the do attitudes because Jesus is describing an inward commitment and character of those who choose to follow him and be part of the kingdom. 
And Jesus starts off every one of these nine statements that we read earlier in our worship time together with the same word, blessed. This word comes from a Greek word, makarios. And the Greek word is translated happy or fortunate, favored by God, ultimate well-being. Jonathan Pennington is a New Testament professor at Southern Baptist Theological, and he presents the idea that this word that represents the blessed life Jesus is describing is best described by using the word flourishing. Survey Pinkers wrote a book called The Pursuit of Happiness God's Way, Living Out the Beatitudes. Listen to what he says. Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers into the way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. The Beatitudes are Jesus' answer to the human questions about happiness, an answer given in the form of a series of promises and challenges. Scott McKnight calls the Beatitudes a radical envisioning of the people of God. They're a description of a different way to live life. When I was in college, I developed a pretty severe back issue. I self-diagnosed myself and thought that the sharp pain going down my leg and radiating in my back was simply because I was doing a lot of sitting. I was sitting in class for lots of long periods during the day, and I also had a weekend ministry that I drove back and forth to every weekend. I would finish class on Friday, drive two hours to this small little town in Kentucky, spend the weekend with students, and then drive back on Sunday night those other two hours. And so all that sitting was just wreaking havoc on my back and my legs, so I thought. And it got to a point where it was so bad, I decided to go see a doctor. And after taking x-rays, the doctor diagnosed that I had these bulging discs in my back that were putting pressure on my sciatic nerve running down my leg. If you've ever had issues with your sciatic nerve, you know that the pain physically is almost topped by the mental kind of excruciating pain. It just drives you crazy. And so he recommended that I would go see a chiropractor and also do some physical therapy. And both of those were extremely helpful. But a couple years ago, I had a flare up in my back. And as I was describing it to one of my friends, he said, have you ever tried an inversion table? And I said, no, I don't even know what one is. And so he introduced me to this tool of torture called the inversion table. (laughs) It was down in his basement. And basically he brought me there. We strapped my legs into this machine and he flipped me upside down. And the purpose was that as you're hanging there, it just reduces that that stress and pressure in your back and it puts some space in there. And it actually did really help the first time. It was so much fun. He said, do you want to do it again? I was like, sure, why not? And so when he flipped me up the second time, my world started to spin. I couldn't remember my name. Just the whole room was spinning. The only thing I could mentally remember is myself saying this, don't puke on the floor, don't puke on the floor, don't puke on the floor. I was that dizzy. As we study through the Beatitudes today and the Sermon on the Mount in the days in front, Jesus is describing an upside down way of living that may make our heads spin. Jesus doesn't present a a list of heroes of the faith or even a list of moral characters that describe a truly pious person, but rather he's redefining who the people of God are. The ones whose lives look like this beatitudinal way of living like Jesus himself. I think the beatitudes really serve as a a thematic outline for the whole Sermon on the Mount, maybe even the whole book of Matthew. It depicts Jesus in a biography. 
for the purpose of inspiring followers to model their life after him. Matthew shows Jesus as the, as the picture of what full life looks like so that we can learn from him. And, and he'll have a lasting effect on changing the way that we live. So instead of today unpacking all these nine Beatitude statements, I want us to look at the four themes that I see present in the Beatitudes. We'll see them throughout the Sermon on the Mount. I think that they help us understand Jesus' mission and his ministry. They help us understand this invitation to follow him and also how to model our lives after him. The first theme is this, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' first sermon was actually recorded earlier in the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 17. It's short and straight to the point. Jesus says this, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. It echoes the same message that been preached by John the Baptist. God's reign was drawing near in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, those who are poor in spirit understand their own fallenness and need of repentance. And they seek to surrender themselves under the reign of God. Jesus' upside down way of living is ushered into our hearts by those, by us being poor in spirit, meek and humble. And even it's demonstrated in those who are persecuted by the way that they live, Jesus says, the righteous way to live. Matthew quotes Jesus 31 times using this phrase, kingdom of heaven. Most of those times are wrapped up in stories that he calls parables. And they're to tell this earthly existence, this earthly lesson, that our earthly thing that, that speaks a heavenly listen, a picture of what it looks like for heaven to come to earth. But Jesus just doesn't talk about it. He actually lives it. We Understand how to live under the reign of God by hearing Jesus teach us to pray, saying these words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is in heaven. And Jesus isn't just saying those words. Those are actually the prayers that he prayed. Remember in the garden before he was crucified, he prays to God, Father, if it's possible for this cup to be taken from me, then please do it. But not my will, yours be done. We flourish when we surrender to God's reign in our lives and let God's pleasing and perfect will be played out in the way that we live. Jesus has another theme, and it's the theme of righteousness. Those who make up the kingdom have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're satisfied in Christ alone, and they also feed on his word and are filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says the pure in heart will see God. Holiness should be noticed in the lives of all those who follow Jesus. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is constantly unpacking what it truly means to be righteous. And he does that by contrasting the outward, hollow, external legalism that was taught and perpetuated by the religious leaders of the day. He contrasts the way they were living out righteousness by the way God reflects righteousness, by being humble and pure and servant-hearted and loving, and merciful, all reflected in God's character. The righteousness of Jesus is a matter of the heart that flourishes under the reign of Jesus, and it produces a lifestyle that bears spiritual fruit. Listen to what Pinkers in his book, Living the the Beatitudes, says again. 
He says, we can compare the work of the Beatitudes to that of a plow in the fields. Drawn along with determination, it drives a sharp edge of the plowshare into the earth and carves out, as the poets say, a deep wound, a broad furrow. In the same way, the words of the Beatitudes penetrate us with the power of the Holy Spirit in order to break up the interior of our soul. It cuts through us with a sharp edge of trials and with struggles it provokes. It overturns our ideas and projects. It reverses the obvious. It thwarts our desires. It bewilders us, leaving us poor and naked before God. All of this in order to prepare a place within us for the seed of new life, the righteousness of God. The righteousness that Jesus speaks of is produced by his presence in our lives. The seed of God's word being planted in our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit to purify our lives and also to restore our friendship and fellowship with God. The third theme I see in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount is this theme of mercy. Anyone who knows my dad knows that he uses a phrase everywhere he goes, every, all throughout the day. It's mercy, mercy, mercy. He says it so much that when my friends came over to visit, they thought my mom's name was Mercy because my dad said it so much. They thought the dog's name was Mercy, but we didn't grow up having a dog. That's how much my dad said the word Mercy. But Mercy is not a word. Rather, it's a state of the heart that makes peace, that shows compassion, that forgives others. Glenn Stassen says this, Mercy is about action. Generous action that delivers someone from need or bondage. The merciful that Jesus describes, they flourish because they've received mercy, but also they show mercy to others. In a cold, eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth, revenge-seeking, cutthroat, law-driven, legalistic, political-driven world, Jesus says that his followers are meek, they're merciful, they're peace-loving. My friends, that's upside down way of living. And Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He said those words first when he visited the house of Matthew. I love that Matthew records his own calling story in Matthew chapter nine, verse nine. Listen to what he says. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. This is himself read, writing this. I was sitting at a tax collector's booth and Jesus said, follow me. Matthew got up and followed him. When Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house a little later, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. And they asked his disciples, or, or with his disciples, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus overheard this and said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew knew how his life had been turned upside down when Jesus said, come and follow me. He knew the wrong that he had done. He knew that he was an enemy of Israel because he was a friend of Rome. He had sold his soul out to Rome so that he could make a few bucks or two. And that made him an outcast and somebody who was hated. He knew his wrong because he was told his wrong every time somebody looked at him. And yet when Jesus looked at him, he felt mercy. He felt forgiveness. He felt love. 
And what he did immediately was invite a whole bunch of sinners over to his house and said, you guys got to meet this guy who's changing my life. Matthew received mercy, but he also was demonstrating mercy. Jesus turned the world upside down by living countercultural, teaching his followers to serve those in need, to love their enemies, to do good to those who persecuted them, to turn the other cheek, to forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven. A flourishing life is not dictated by how others treat you, but instead it's defined by how you treat others. It's not just about being blessed by God, but it's also about blessing others. And Jesus doesn't mince words when he provides the fourth theme for us to consider, and that is persecution. He says, when you live against the culture, when you live differently by following me, people are not going to applaud. People might recognize, but they're going to criticize or even ridicule you for doing so. And that's why he says in the Beatitudes, these words, blessed are you when people insult you. They persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says you're in good company when people make fun of you or isolate you or abandon you because you are living the way that Jesus does. You're in good company because when the prophets live that way, they stone them. And Jesus, throughout Matthew, tells his followers many times, I'm going to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders, and they're going to crucify me. Jesus kept his eye on the reward in heaven, and he challenges us to do the same. That's why Hebrews chapter 2, or 12, verse 2 says this, For the joy set before him, meaning Jesus, he he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Moving here to a new town and moving your daughter into her first apartment has given me lots of opportunity to assemble modular furniture that comes in a box. If you've ever assembled modular furniture that comes in a box, you know that the instructions have no words. They just have pictures. And there you sit in the middle of the room with a lot of pictures and a lot of parts all over the floor, right? Jesus is the picture of what it looks like to flourish. Jesus is the picture of how we can pick up the pieces of our life and let him shape and mold our hearts into what it looks like to have life to the fullest. Matthew says that Jesus' name is Emmanuel, God with us. John says that Jesus is the word made flesh. And when you put those two ideas together, it helps us understand why Jesus was sent here to show us how to live. Listen how the message records John 1.14 says, the word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. By looking at Jesus, we can have a picture of what it looks like to do life to the fullest. Jonathan Pennington says this, Christianity is not a set of doctrines added onto or even fundamentally altering Judaism. It is a revelation of God himself in a person. 
To be godly or godlike has always meant to act in accord with who God is and how he acts. This is made clearest and most pointed, Pennington says, with the revelation of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. We now have a complete image of what it means to be like God. What I love about Jesus the most next to him saving me from my sins is the fact that he did what he said. Jesus lived out his sermons. Nick Martino is, was a pastor at a wonderful church in Texas called Cowboy Church. And he describes Cowboy Church as everything you think it would be, complete with cowboy boots, cowboy hats, mustaches, and lots of trucks in the parking lot, right? And while Nick was there, he met a wonderful guy, a quintessential cowboy named Don. And every day when Don would leave church, he would tell Nick these words, preacher, you know that the best sermons are preached, not are, are, are not preached, but lived. I think that's why Jesus didn't just talk about what it looked like to live this life to the fullest. He actually lived it. And I think Matthew takes great pains to show that Jesus is humble and meek. He's poor in spirit. He mourns and he grieves. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He's pure in heart. He brings peace. He makes peace. He shows mercy. And he keeps his eyes set on the reward in heaven regardless of how people treated him. His life and teachings are on display in pictures so that you and I can learn to walk in his steps. And as we do, Jesus describes the influence and impact we should have in the world. We read these words earlier together as a congregation. They're very familiar words, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, where Jesus says that you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Until this week, I'd never seen the context of those words being the Beatitudes. What Jesus is describing as this way of life, he, he bookends by saying that when you live this way, it should have impact in the world. But there's something real significant about the two things Jesus describes us as, as his followers, salt and light. While they do have impact, they also speak of covenant. And that's what Jesus is making with his followers when he asked them to follow him. Salt certainly had practical uses like purification or preserving things or even seasoning things. But salt was also used to, to denote permanence. Salt was part of a, a covenantal relationship. In fact, in the Old Testament, salt was added, commanded to be added to every sacrifice that was presented before God because God wanted to demonstrate the permanent relationship he was making with his people. And that's why Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing because it's supposed to demonstrate permanence. Light is the same way. In the Old Testament, especially Isaiah, uses this theme of light to reflect and represent God's presence with his people. In the tabernacle and in the temple, there were lampstands that were to never go out. They were to be lit 24-7 because it was demonstrating God's presence with his people. And so when Jesus says that we're salt and light, he's talking about the covenant relationship we have with him. And when we live this life to the fullest, it certainly has impact and influence on the world around us. The entire Sermon on the Mount is a manifesto for the life of the individual follower for Jesus. It's lived out in the community of other followers and is a summary description of what a true disciple looks like. Jesus' words and his life 
are countercultural. And those who live in relationship with him should be too. Jesus invites us to follow him to, to a flourishing life, a life that's full, the life to the fullest. And maybe you feel like your life is just shattered into a bunch of pieces. Maybe you sit here today helpless or hopeless or lifeless, purposeless. Draw near to Jesus. He's the one who's speaking, he's teaching, he's healing, he's restoring. Say yes to his invitation to follow him. Learn his ways. Surrender to his reign. Find mercy. Experience heaven on earth. Flourish. His recipe for flourishing is just by answering these profound questions. First of all, are you surrendering to the reign of Jesus in your life? Are you pursuing righteousness? Are you receiving and showing mercy? Are you enduring persecution? Jesus says, when we live this way, we actually are living the way we were always designed to live, in covenant with God, reflecting the character of him and his son Jesus, and making an impact in the world that though they may accuse us of doing wrong, they will glorify God on the day he visits. Let's pray together. God, thanks for being God. Thanks for having wisdom that is not limited by this world, but yet it defines this world. It defines the way that we should live, the way you've designed life to be, life to the fullest, God. And every day it seems I lock eyes with people who are searching for that. They, want, they, they realize this existence here on earth is, is not what it's all about, and yet they're not sure about what it truly means to live life full. God, because you created us, you know what that looks like. And that's why you sent Jesus to show us a picture of what it looks like so that we could learn about it, but also so we could live it, God. And so I pray that you would teach us. You would create this kind of character and life in us through your word, through your Holy Spirit, and through the indwelling presence of Jesus every day. And God, we would just not be hearers, but we would live out the truths that are presented to us through the life of Jesus. And that as our lives become more and more entwined with him and look more like him, God, the world would see you and they would be drawn to you. We pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.